Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Great to be with you. Or you guys are sliding further back. I don't know what's going on. Do I spit or something like that? We're going to have shirts made up. I've said this many times. I've sat in the front row or something. Like at Disney World you get, or your honeymoon, or, or whatever. I don't know. Let's just move on. Hey, uh, two things. One, you may notice the screens are cutting in and out, and you, perhaps you're thinking, maybe they don't know. Um, we know that it's been doing that. We have, we're on about plan number seven of the, the problem. Uh, we think now it could be a lot of folks are on Wi-Fi, and that's interrupting things. So just, and, but here's the thing. On Monday, we come in, we let it run for... 10 hours and we don't have a single problem. And then we do a Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And then you all come and we have problems. You're the problem. Uh, so here's, you can help us actually. If everybody that is on Wi-Fi right now and you're like, I don't know if I'm on Wi-Fi, check your phone, you probably are. Turn off Wi-Fi and we're gonna see if it solves the problem. Right. Our plan is to have Comcast come in and run a separate line. Um, but So everyone go on your little phone, you have permission now to be on it, uh, and turn off your Wi-Fi. Do it, Scott. Do it. <laughs> All right. All right, and we'll see if that's it. Um, pray for us. We're, we're going to figure it out. Pray for wisdom that the Lord will get us there. I also want to tell you about something we're doing next week. Next week happens to be the fifth Sunday of a month. It happens uh, three to four times a year, uh, and we're going to do something different on fifth Sunday. We're going to bring into the service our children from grades one through f- six will come into the service as well and begin to get a glimpse of what it means to, to worship um, with adults and things like that. So that should be fun. Uh, we're looking forward to that. Uh, the kids are going to sit with their parents, all right? So they're not with their teachers in the front row uh, or whatever it may be. So parents, uh, they're going to be sitting with you. That'll be on the fifth Sunday. We're not doing it this time in the future. Uh, we just didn't have enough time to prepare things um, We'll also have a fellowship time afterwards in which there'll be a potluck and lunch and, and all that kind of stuff. But not this week coming up. This, we are bringing the kids in, but we're not doing uh, the potluck this time. However, if you want to bring food and share it with others, I'm sure uh, the parking lot, you could have a picnic or something. All right. So, does that sound fun? And you're like, yeah, whatever. We'll see how it works out. All right. So that'll be uh, this fifth Sunday. Today, though, we are going to be looking at the book of Hosea, and you can turn there. Uh, Hosea chapter 2 is where we left off. And so we'll just continue to pick right up where uh, we left off. Now we stopped in the middle of a chapter uh, at verse 13. So today we're going to pick up in verse 14. Let me pray for us. Lord, we do ask for insight as we consider these things. And Lord, I pray that uh, this morning you would bless this gathering of people with your heart as well. And Lord, that the heart that you demonstrated, your love that you, uh, you showed to uh, your children Israel through your servant Hosea, um, Father, that our hearts would be opened up to get a glimpse of that love as well. And so, Lord, minister this morning. Use your word, Lord, and we thank you for it. And we pray our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just take a quick sip. Excuse me. Now, as I said, we are in chapter 2. And we didn't get a chance to get all the way through chapter 2. And it would have been ideal to make our way all the way through the chapter to get a sense of what the Lord was trying to do uh, in this particular chapter. But 
uh, we can only stay here so long. Well, I guess we can stay here as long as we want nowadays, um, but you guys throw things after a certain point in time. But you may recall that chapter 2 begins in the same place that chapter 2 ends, and then all in the middle are details of things. And so again, I'll remind you, look at chapter 2. It begins with, say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. To put it in, a, in another set of languages, it's, it's to say to your brother and your sister, they're going to be restored one day. And remember, as we spend some time looking at Hosea's children, they represent the people of the nation of Israel. And so Hosea has three children that he's raising, if you will. One is Jezreel, the other is Ami, and the other is Ruhamah. And those three children represent the people of the nation of Israel, even as Gomer, Hosea's wife, represents the nation of Israel, and Gomer is going to represent the Lord himself. And as we spent some time last time looking at those two, Ami and Ruhamah, the people, they went astray. Jezreel represents the faithful Jewish people that remained with the Lord. But Ruhamah, Ami, they went astray. They went to follow after their foreign gods. And so the Lord removed, as he did, as Hosea did there with Gomer, the Lord removed his hand of protection from them. And they began to feel the consequences of their sin and of their rebellion. And we look at that again, and I remind you of the main point of last week. The Lord's purpose in all of that was so that they would repent so that they would return. He wasn't getting even with them. It wasn't as if he became mad with them and so he's going to make them suffer now or something. It was so by any means necessary they would return to the Lord, which was the title of our sermon last week. And so as we're going to see, and you'll pick it up as we continue to go through the book of Hosea, there's sort of this pattern of things that as you move through. And the pattern is this. It's that the sin of Israel and Judah are detailed, then God punishes them for those sins. Then Israel repents and is restored. And we see that in chapter 1, and then there's restoration at the end. We see it in chapter 2, there's restoration at the end. Chapter 3, restoration at the end. That's the pattern of how the book is written here. And so chapter 2 begins that second cycle of judgment on sin and ultimate restoration. And how God progressively makes it a little more painful the judgment, so that at some point in time we wake up and we're like, what am I doing? Why am I going in this direction? This is ridiculous. I'm going to return to the Lord. So let's pick up where we left off. Verse 14. I'm going to read from 14 to the end of the chapter. I think it is a remarkable passage of scripture, for in it the Lord courts his wayward wife. And why would God do that? And let's take a look. It says, therefore, behold, I will allure her I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth and as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day declares the Lord, verse 16, you will call me my husband and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. The Baals were the foreign gods. I'll remove their names from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war from the land. And I'll make you lie down in safety. I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. 
I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, he says, and you shall know the Lord. Verse 21, and in that day I'll answer, declares the Lord, I'll answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I'll have no, I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people and he shall say you are my God. Now again, take notice verse 23 starts where verse 1 started. They pretty much say the exact same thing. So look at verse, I think we have those two verses. Compare those two verses there. So verse 1, remember, you are my people. And I can't read it, it's too far away. I'll read it here. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters you've received mercy. Now look at verse 23, and I'll have mercy on no mercy. And I'll say to not my people, you are my people. And so there's a, this time of judgment. That's verses 2 to 13. But after that time of judgment, as we see in both the introductory verse and then in the latter verses of the chapter, God is going to restore his people. Now, how's God going to go about that restoration? How's it going to do? Well, remember this. We've lo- looked at this many times in our studies together. God will never compel people to worship him. He's never going to compel them to serve him. But what God does is he wins their hearts so that they want to worship him and they want to serve him. And he's going to do that here. Now, I know that sounds a bit contradictory because if I don't want to do it and then God wins my heart so that I do do it, now it feels like he's made me do something I didn't want to do. But if your heart has been won over and that's what you want to do, well, then that's what you want to do. Got it? Who's on first? You know, it's one of these types of situations here. And we see it's, it's almost like the doctrines of free will and God's sovereign election. Well, how can those two things work together? They're completely opposite of one another. They seem to be, but somehow the Lord makes those two things work together. And in the same way here, a person that may be reluctant to worship the Lord and serve the Lord, he can win that person's heart. So that's the very desire of their heart. And he did that to me. And, and, I, and I know he's done it to many of you as well. And God has been increasingly winning my heart over to him, even as I walk with him over these years. And so with that in mind, look at verse 14. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Now, I said earlier, it was unfortunate we couldn't finish the chapter because I think we lose a key point or a key thing that occurs between verse 13 and verse 14. So look back at 13 just for a second there. Verse 13 ends by referencing Gomer. Now remember, Gomer is Hosea's wife, and she represents the nation of Israel. And verse 13 ends by referencing Gomer's having gone after her lovers and having forgotten the Lord. And literally in the case of Hosea and Gomer, that's what she did. She had gone astray. She began to have her adulterous affairs. She had even gotten herself involved in prostitution. Now verse 14, one would expect it to say, And because you wouldn't have me, neither would I have you. Wouldn't you expect it to say something like that? Or because you wouldn't have me, I really had to turn up the fire to teach you a lesson. But notice instead what we read is after she had forgotten the Lord, after she had gone after her lovers, verse 14 says, and so therefore behold, I will allure her. That's his next plan of action is to win her heart much like a person tries to win the heart of someone that they're uh, pursuing. And so some guy likes some girl, and he says, oh, I'm going to get her flowers. 
or I'm going to dress a little nicer. Maybe I'll comb my hair or whatever. And they're trying to allure that person, win that person's heart. That's the Lord's next strategy. He had done each of those other things, and we would expect him to really turn the fire up. And instead, this time he says, therefore, I will allure her. Now, last week when we were together, I told you there's three therefores in chapter 2. They're located in verse 6, verse 9, and verse 14. And they, in many ways, represent the Lord going to another plan. I tried this, it didn't win her back. I tried this, she didn't uh, last in her returning to me. And here now is the third of those three therefores. And again, rather than it be rebuff, we instead find pursuit. And rather than rejection, we see from the Lord an even more concerted effort to win the heart of his love. And as I study the scripture, as I seek to know the Lord in my own personal walk, I don't think there's anything more marvelous than the pursuing love of God. The pursuing love of the Lord as he comes after us and he chases us. Somebody has, in a poem has referred to him as the hound of heaven, like a hound dog would find its, whatever it's trying to get. I don't know what hound dogs do, but he is like the hound of heaven. And he's going to get us. There's a, a great uh, series of books. I think it was Tozer. Somebody could correct me if I'm wrong. Um, called uh, The Divine Pursuit. And the way in, is that the right, anybody know? All right. And, and the way in which the Lord will pursue us. And many of us in here, I would describe us as reluctant believers. It wasn't our intention to come to know the Lord. But it was the Lord's intention we would come to know him. And he won our hearts And that's what he is doing here. That's what we're seeing in this particular passage. He's saying to Israel, Hosea is saying to his wife, Gomer, I love you. I'll forgive you. Return from me, with me. Leave this lifestyle, and so on and so forth here. And the final 10 verses are all about that pursuit and that return of Israel. So in verse 15, it says, I'll give her her vineyards. I'll make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. He's beginning this pursuing process of winning her heart. And he begins here by saying, I'm going to take that valley of Acre and transform it to a door of hope. Now that word Acre there, it means trouble. And so I'm going to take your valley of trouble and I'm going to instead convert that to a door of hope or a door of opportunity. And that valley of trouble in Israel, it's a literal place, the valley of Acre, it's been the valley of trouble ever since Joshua chapter 7. Shortly after the children of Israel came into the promised land, Joshua records for that. Moses has died. He's led the people to the the edge of the promised land. Joshua is now going to lead them in where they're going to conquer this land that God had promised them four or five hundred years earlier. And when they get there, chapter 7, so it's pretty early in the book, you have what is referred to as the sin of Achan. As one of these fellows here decides to to take some of the booty of the spoils, the spoils uh, of conquering some of the people, and takes these household gods. And it's the saddest story, I think, in so many ways in the Bible, because he sees these little gold trinkets, they catch his eye, they catch his heart, and so he steals them, and what does he do with them? He goes into his tent and he buries them. Because nobody can know that he has them. Also, you sinned for nothing. Why did you do that? And the nation suffered as a result of his sin. And they began to go into battle and they began to lose. This is the verse where it talks about that there is sin in the camp. And all because of this guy here. That becomes, that place 
becomes there or is known of as the Valley of Acre, the Valley of Trouble. And it's there the Lord says, I will core unfaithful Israel. And in time, I will win her heart and draw her back to myself. And he predicts that there is a time coming, even as Israel in, in our story is being taken away into captivity. Remember the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, as they're going to be taken away into captivity, there's this prediction in Hosea chapter 2 that they will return to the land. I want to remind you a few things about the history of the nation of Israel. Oh, goody, some of you are thinking. All right. You know that the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom is what became known of as Israel. They were taken captive by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. Let's just say 700 B.C. They were taken captive. That's what we call the Assyrian captivity. The Assyrians were later conquered by the Babylonians. And the Babylonians... Uh, continued to control the northern empire, those captives. They, they just adopted them, so to speak. They also went into the southern kingdom of the Jewish people, which we call Judah. And in 586, they took them captive. So now all of the Jewish people that lived in that region, all of the Jewish people were now in captivity to the Babylonians and in the various places that they had them. Well, the Babylonians, their empire comes to an end. This is around 500 B.C. And now the world ruling empire is a combination empire of the Medes and the Persians. You know the Persians, Iran, that region of the world. Now the Persians are dominating the world, and they continue to have control of the Jewish people who were originally captured by the Assyrians, taken over then by the Babylonians. Now the Persians are in control of them. And the Persians, you may recall from some of our Sunday morning studies, they allowed the Jewish people, you, as long as you're under our control and you're not going to rebel against us, you can go back to your homeland if you want. And we read about that in the books of Esther and Ezra and in Nehemiah. And so some of the Jewish people took them up on that offer. This, however, that we're reading in Hosea about the Jewish people returning to the land, that is not the same thing. It's a different prophecy. It's not even a prophecy, uh, the Jewish people, because the Jewish people only came back in a small number, percentage-wise, um, at the time of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As you look at the Hosea passage, it's talking about a restoration which will be way beyond what happened around the year 450 B.C. in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The number pales in comparison where maybe as many as 100,000 compared to 5 million or so, which had been there, all right? And so the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes. Now, the Medes and the Persians, they were defeated. Everybody gets defeated at some point in time. They were defeated by the Greeks, and the Greeks were defeated by the Romans, and eventually the Romans become, if you will, that world-ruling empire. And each one of those empires had control over the Jewish people in those years. Hosea is speaking of a future kingdom, and he's speaking of a day of restoration that looks long past Christ. It even looks past our day. It's a day in the future. He is speaking of Hosea in chapter 2, the ultimate fulfillment of these things. He's speaking about what is called the millennial kingdom or the millennium, and you've no doubt you've heard that phrase. There was a lot of talk about the millennium uh, at Y2K, and we're entering into this, is the world going to end, and things like that, and so on and so forth. 
And we know that Hosea is speaking, maybe partially it was fulfilled when the Jewish people began to return, or perhaps partially it was fulfilled in 1948 following World War II as the Jewish people had uh, a homeland of their own for the first time in 1900 years. Partially it's fulfilled, but we know it's not fully fulfilled because the passage in Hosea goes much further on to describe what that restoration is like. Let's look at it. The first thing that we see, verse 16, is that during the time of that future restoration, the Jewish people who had previously continually run after their foreign gods will forsake their foreign gods. They'll have no interest in them. It says in verse 16, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Remember, my, that, that Baal was the name of one of the foreign deities that they ran after. He says, For I will re- remove the name of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. Now, I, I didn't do this this week. I had planned to, but didn't have an opportunity. If you have a Jewish friend, maybe you should try this this week as well. Ask that Jewish friend if they know who Baal is. And, and I suspect the vast majority of Jewish people, overwhelming majority, will be like, what? Never heard that word before. Because it doesn't even come to the mouth, really, of the Jewish people anymore. Certainly, they're not worshiping and serving the Baals any longer. So that could be fun, you and your Jewish friend, and then it could lead to a conversation. The, the fellows that work downstairs here, many of them are Orthodox Jews. And so I'm, I'm hoping to get some time. I didn't really have a chance this week to, to sit with them and ask them, do you know who the Baals are? Uh, and that should be fun. All right, anyway, moving on. I have a different idea of fun, apparently, than a lot of you guys. Verse 17 it says, I'll remove the names of these Baals uh, from her mouth. And as we said, uh, when the people of Israel began to come back from those captivities, they had given up their foreign gods. Remember I shared last week that God had given them, you want foreign gods, you got it. So many foreign gods, I, I use the example from, uh, from, I think it's number somewhere, uh, that they came out of their nostrils. Uh, it seemed, like the meat that they wanted to have in that particular point. And the Jewish people became sick of their deities, their false deities. And for 2,500 years, they have been a people that are committed to monotheism. Well, that was a change that God did. Now, Hosea continues, though. Look at verse 18. He says, I'll make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land and I'll make you lie down in safety. Now, again, this is one of those we read it last week, and so we may not remember it this week, but we saw in verses 2 through 13 the way in which, as part of the judgment God was bringing, the way in which the land would be given over to the the beasts of the fields and they would devour the land. Well, here now we see that there is going to be a covenant with the beast of the field. That when the Jewish people are restored, God is going to make a covenant with both the surrounding animal kingdom and the surrounding human kingdoms where there will be peace in the land. So this is where, like in Isaiah chapter 2, it speaks of where the the lamb is going to lie down with the wolf and that those two are going to be buddies and pals and you see art of the lion and the lamb lying down one with another. That's that period of restoration. Notice also there, it says that the Lord will abolish the bow, the sword, and even war from the land. Now, think back to your Jewish history. 
Is that the case with, with Israel today? Certainly not. There's just nonstop war. I think it was this week or maybe last week where bombs were flying in uh, to their land again, and they're dealing with that and, and, and so on and so forth. And so to some degree, these promises may have occurred, but the peace and safety and the abolition of war in the land, that hasn't even come close to happening in the history of the Jewish people. In fact, if you really want a Nobel Prize, some of you would like to pursue, I want to be a Nobel Prize winner, you figure out world peace between Israel and its surrounding nations, you'll get yourself a Nobel Peace Prize because everybody's tried to do it and nobody can do it. So Hosea is speaking, or has been able to, Hosea is speaking of a future time here. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the millennial kingdom. Now, some of us may be familiar with it. Others of us may may not be. The millennial kingdom, the millennium. That is, the Bible teaches, the 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And it's an event which will take place after the tribulation and before the start of eternity future, so to speak, of heaven. Now, the term millennium is not actually found in our Bibles. And it's actually a combination of two Latin words. So when the Bible was translated into Latin, it's a combination of two Latin words, one for 1,000 and one for a year. And that's how we get this word millennium. And it only rec- it's only recorded for us, that length of time is only recorded for us one time in the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 20. It says, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. That's the millennium. Let me give you a quick timeline of last day's events. Presently, we are living in the last days. Some versions refer to it as the latter times. According to Peter, the apostle Peter, on the day of Pentecost, this is Acts chapter 2, this is the birth of the church. Notice Peter says this, he stands up with the 11, he raises his voice, he addresses the crowd, he says, fellow Jews, all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. These people that are here doing what they were doing, you could read the passage, they're not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. No, he says, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And so what Peter says there is, you see what's going on here? This is the start of the last days. And so the church age is the start, if you will, of the last days. Now, I understand when most people think of the last days, they're talking about the very last of the last days. And they're talking about things like the rapture and the tribulation and the false prophet and the antichrist and things like that. So let me give you a basic timeline of the last of the last days, working from the tribulation as our reference point. You've all heard of that term, the tribulation? All right, the tribulation is a seven-year period of time, and it marks a seven-year peace agreement between the one that would come to be known as the Antichrist and the people of Israel. And so I said earlier, if you want to get a Nobel Prize, all you've got to do is figure out peace between Israel and its surrounding nations around it. Well, there is a coming day when that will occur, according to the Scripture and that the Antichrist will develop a seven-year peace agreement. Now, the rest of the world is going to be like, it's amazing. And they're not going to know that, oh, that's the Antichrist. It's just going to be some guy that comes on the scene. And he's going to have this seven-year peace agreement. Now, that seven-year peace agreement, which everyone is rejoicing in around the world, is the same as what the Lord sees as the period of the tribulation. 
And the tribulation is going to be the best of times and the worst of times for the nation of Israel and the believing world. Because the Antichrist, halfway through that tribulation, will reveal his true colors and turn his wrath against the people of the Lord. And that halfway mark is the start of what we call the Great Tribulation. Now, the book of Daniel tells us what that event is, that halfway mark event. Daniel chapter 9 tells us that's the abomination that causes desolation. All right, you all with me still? Peace agreement, everything's great. Uh Uh-oh, what is he doing? All right, that event in the middle of it is the abomination of desolation. Now, I've been using the tribulation as our reference point. Sometime, either before, during, or at the conclusion of the tribulation will be the rapture of God's saints. And if you and I are still alive on that day, that's us. The rapture is the calling up of God's people to heaven. Now, believers differ. That's why I said sometimes. Believers differ as to when that event will occur. There are some, like myself, for instance, that believe it will occur before the start of the tribulation, perhaps even before the signing of that seven-year peace agreement. And since we believe, or those that hold that view believe, that it's before the tribulation, those individuals believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church. That's what I hold. Others hold to this idea that somewhere during the middle of the tribulation, just before the aforementioned abomination of desolation, the rapture will occur then. And those individuals are referred to by a variety of different names, but one is the pre-wrath rapture of the church. And I'm certainly simplifying this. There's all different other ideas. Then there are those that believe that the rapture occurs at the end of the tribulation, that they're caught up at that moment in time. They meet the Lord as he's returning. They turn around with him, and they come to the end of things, the second coming of Christ. And those individuals believe in or referred to as post-tribulation rapture. They believe in the post-tribulation rapture. Now, the rapture is not the second coming of Christ. And a lot of times we, in our uh, terminology, we seem to be communicating that it's the same thing. And so, whereas believers, we're looking, this could be the day that Jesus comes for me. And so we say the word comes, he's already come one time, that must, I'm looking for the second coming of the Lord. The reality is, you're, if you're a believer in Christ, you're not looking for the second coming of the Lord, you're looking for the rapture, where he's going to take you home, and then you're going to return with him on his second coming. But the rapture is a separate event from the second coming. The second coming is where Christ returns to the earth, defeats the enemies of God, and begins to rule and reign upon the earth. Revelation chapter 19 tells us it. And that period of time where Christ rules and reigns on the earth, that's the millennium. That's the 1,000-year period of time on the earth where peace, prosperity, and righteousness abounds on the earth. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. That period of peace and prosperity and righteousness, it coincides with the 1,000-year binding of Satan. Are you with me? You're not. You're like, just move on, all right? You lost me a long time ago. I'm doing my best here to explain this. Maybe I'll have a chart next time. But Satan will be bound for the 1,000 years of the millennium. That's why sin won't be on the earth. Righteousness will abound on the earth. That's Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Now, at the conclusion of that 1,000-year period of time, Satan will be, reloo- will be released from his bondage. He'll deceive the nations yet one more time, and those nations will rise up 
against the Lord. Revelation 27. But Satan will be easily defeated by the Lord and will be cast into the lake of fire forever. Revelation 20, verses 9 and 10. And that event will begin, will inaugurate the new heaven and the new earth. That's the eternity of heaven that we oftentimes think of. That's Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 to 27. And so each of these events, we find them in our scriptures. Again, there is some question about when exactly the rapture occurs and good people, good Christians that are looking in their scriptures to understand these things come to differing of views. But most of those other events that I mentioned to you, it's pretty clear. This is when it's happening and this is what's going to be going on there. Now, let's go back to this idea of the millennium. That period of time between the return of Christ right after the tribulation and the start of that new heaven and new earth That's the thousand-year period of time that Hosea is speaking about here in chapter 2 of the book. And it's a time when sin and sorrow and war and desolation will not be allowed to encompass, to use Hosea's word, the valley of trouble. It'll be a time of hope. It'll be a time of opportunity where righteousness can finally reign upon the earth. You know when the last time righteousness reigned on the earth was? Genesis chapter 2. That's a long time ago. All right, but sin has been on the earth ever since. And so we're, we look forward to that wonderful day. Now, let me throw this out at you as well. There are some that teach that this material has nothing to do with the nation of Israel. But rather that all of these promises of restoration and peace and prosperity and so on, that it refers to the church. That Israel had its chance They rejected their Messiah, and the Lord has cast them off. Let me ask you, does that sound like the message of the book of Hosea? Not at all. That's the exact opposite of what God is trying to demonstrate and show through the life of Hosea. So I I don't hold to that particular view. It doesn't seem like uh, many of you do as well. What the book of Hosea teaches us is that the Lord will not cast off his covenant people forever, but that he will pursue them so that by any means necessary, they will be restored. And I encourage you, if, if you tend to think, well, maybe that is what the Scripture teaches, that God's done with the Jewish people, the church has replaced uh, the Jews, and all the blessings that seem to apply to the Jews in the past now apply to the church, I'd encourage you to read these places. And there's a lot of material here, um, so we're not going to look at them. Romans chapter 11, really Romans chapters 9 through 11. Ezekiel chapter 36 uh, the the latter half of the chapter, and then chapter 37. Jeremiah, chapter 30, and chapter 31. I think each of those, you read those somewhat quickly even, just kind of glancing at them and looking at them. The the takeaway from them, the immediate takeaway that I think is for the honest reader is simply that God has not and will not cast off the Jewish people forever. Well, speaking of forever, look at verse 19. He says, I'll betroth you to me forever. I'll betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. And we see when relationship with the Lord is ultimately restored, it will never be broken again. I don't think there's a greater promise in Scripture than that because it applies to you and I as well. Earlier I used the, well, he did. He used the phrase, the door of hope. There is no wider door of hope that could possibly be set before this people than this promise of being restored to the Lord forever. That's the door of hope that is before them. I will restore you. 
and I will restore you in a way that is forever. And I think that same promise of hope is before each of us. We wander, we stray, we get ourselves involved in sin. And a lot of times we want to beat ourselves up. We want to suffer. We want to go through a penance for a period of time. The Lord says, return, return, and I'll restore you. I'll cleanse you. I'll wash you. And if you ever find yourself wondering if the Lord could forgive you or he'll accept you, remind yourself of this wonderful verse. Again, he says that the Lord will be betrothed to you. He'll betroth you to himself. He says there forever. And he will be eternally faithful to that covenant. Now, moving on here to 21, what will this betrothal of faithfulness, what's, what's it going to look like? He says, in that day I'll answer, declares the Lord, I'll answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain and the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself. And there's, there's sort of a picture here. So it's as if the grain is crying to the earth, we could really use some water. And so the earth cries to the heavens, hey, can you give us some rain? And the rain or the heavens cry to the Lord and said, rain, please. And the Lord says, I will answer the heavens, who will answer the earth, who will answer the earth, who will answer the grain, and so on and so forth. Where the Lord is making a covenant with them. It's a sweet picture of how the earth will be freed from the curse of sin and how it, it will respond with overflowing supplies of grain and of wine and of oil, and how the land is going to abound. And speaking of Jezreel, the Lord says, I will sow her for myself in the land. Now, we've looked at the name Jezreel already. Chapter 1, we were introduced to Jezreel again in chapter 2. What does Jezreel mean? Scattered. I had a girl. You knew it. You were just a little you know, hesitant here. And someone in the back probably said it. But Jezreel means scattered in the Hebrew language. And it's used as a name there. Jezreel also means sown, like sown, like you sow a sower was sowing some seed. You sow. It also means sown in the Hebrew language. Well, how do you know the difference? Well, it's all the context. Are you talking about scattering something? You're talking about sowing something. And in so many ways, they're similar because you can scatter stuff and you can sow stuff. It's the same idea here. And so he says here, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will firmly plant her in the land. And that which previously was scattered will now be sown back in the land. And he says, not only will those that had been driven from the land be scattered, but they will be sown. They will take up root. They will begin to grow. And they will bear eternal fruit, it says here. We learn here that the Lord himself, notice, will sow her, that's Israel, for himself. You see that? He says, I will sow her uh, for myself in the land. The Lord delights to be in fellowship with his people. And so we might think, oh, he's so nice to those people. In some regards, he's being nice to himself there because he delights to fellowship with his people. He delights to fellowship with you as well. Verse 23, he says, I'll have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Now that's how my version translates it. Some of yours translates it into sort of the way it's pronounced in the Hebrew. And so this is where you have uh, lo ami and lo ruhamah. Their names are going to be changed. Their names meant not mercy. Their names meant not my people. But they're going to be changed to, I will show you mercy. You will be my people. Lo ami becomes a me. Lo ruhamah becomes ruhamah. 
Just like Jezreel was meant scattered, now it means sown. And God says to them, you are my people. Notice they say to the Lord, and you are our God. And with that, restoration is complete. And the Lord relates to his people as their God. They and his people relate to him as his people. And that has ever been the desire of the true and living God of the scriptures. The God of the Bible doesn't want a mere slave-like relationship with us. He doesn't desire that at all. He desires to be in relation, real relationship, interacting with, mutually enjoying one another. And that relationship we know is made possible because of the work of Jesus Christ. And so don't miss that. That's perhaps one of the most important things that we can consider in our study today and every time we come to the Scripture, that the heart of what the Bible teaches is that the Lord loves us and he desires to be in relationship with us. And we know, we say it all the time, but we know that sin hinders that relationship. And if it's not dealt with, it prevents relationship from ever occurring at all. In the same way that Gomer's sin broke her relationship with her husband, sin will break our relationship with the Lord. So what's the Lord to do? Does our sin render God powerless? Is relationship between God and man, is it impossible? Because all of us have sinned and all of us continue to sin even against our will at times. Flip over to chapter 3 for a second. One of you shook your head no vigorously. Very good. Not that you wouldn't turn over, that it doesn't hinder our relationship. So go over to chapter 3 for a moment. Because chapter 3, we return once again to sort of the drama of Hosea's life. And this drama, it's, it's meant to dramatically show not just Hosea's relationship with his wife, Gomer, but God's relationship with his people, Israel, and ultimately his relationship with you and I. So starting in verse 1, we read this. The Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love their cakes of raisins. And so I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be faithful to you. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. And afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear of the Lord, in fear to the Lord, and to his goodness in the latter days. Now this is the second time that Hosea is told to go and rescue his wife Gomer, this time from the slave market. And so as you put the pieces of this puzzle together, it seems that Gomer has not only gone astray once more, but that she has now completely abandoned the family altogether. And that she has gotten herself into a situation, a debt situation, where her only remedy now is to sell herself into slavery to pay off the debts that she had incurred. And so beginning in verse 1, the Lord tells Hosea, I want you to go down to the city square. I want you to go down to the slave market. That's where the slave market would have been held. He says, go down to the city square where they're selling the slaves, and I want you to go down there and I want you to purchase your unfaithful wife. You see that in verse 1. Notice also in verse 1, despite the fact that she is with another man. The Lord tells Hosea, I want you to love her nevertheless. 
And then he says, and the reason why I want you to do so is because this is the way that I have loved my children despite their turning to their other gods. Now the text, the text doesn't say despite the fact that she had been with another man, but it says she is with another man. I think that makes a big difference, don't you? This isn't some past sin. This is what she's presently involved with. She's presently with another man, and the Lord says, I want you to go, and I want you to love her. Now, as an aside, just quickly, this shows us, I would suggest, that even though Deuteronomy chapter 24, even though Matthew chapter 19 permit divorce in the case of adultery, those passages do not command divorce in the midst of adultery. And so if the Lord commanded divorce in every case of adultery, then this would be going against what he's commanding right here in Hosea chapter 3. So that's the first aside. The Lord can heal. A second aside, take note, is the important principle about love that we see here. And I think we could all pretty safely assume that Hosea almost certainly didn't feel like loving Gomer in this instance in time here that she was with someone else and all that she had put him through. And yet, despite the fact that almost certainly he didn't feel like loving her, he's commanded to love her. He was directed to love even when it must have been very, very hard for him to do. And often we have this idea that love is a feeling. And if we have the feeling, then we love. We act on that feeling. What is going on up here? The Bible shows us that love is really a matter of the will. It's a matter of the will. And whether we feel like loving or not, we can direct ourselves to love someone when God tells us to love someone. And this is why the argument that so many people use, well, we're just not in love anymore, and so we're going to get a divorce or something like that. That is not a valid reason for divorce because that assumes that love is something outside of our will. And we see here, Hosea, go and love this woman. I'm sure one of the hardest things he ever had to do. Anyway, back to Hosea. He tells him, go down to the public market. Buy back your faithless wife from her sin. Previously, Hosea, he learned the nature of Israel's sin through his wife Gomer's actions. He got to feel what the Lord feels. Now he's going to learn the nature of God's mercy and grace as he goes and he loves his wife in this particular way. Verse 2, he says, and so I obeyed. Doesn't say that I'm saying that, but we can see it. He says, I obeyed. I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lithic of barley. Now, as a result of her lifestyle, she had gotten herself into some trouble. And she had gotten herself to the point where she had become a slave on the open market. In, ancient, in the ancient world, there were basically three ways you became a slave. One was you were conquered in battle. Two, uh, you were born, your parents were slaves, and you were born into slavery. And then three is you incurred a debt that you could not reasonably come up with a way to pay, and so you had to sell yourself essentially into indentured servitude. You had to sell yourself into slavery. That's the means by which Gomer enters into slavery here. And we know quite a bit about the selling of slaves in the ancient world. We even know quite a bit about it in the relatively recent history that you and I study in America and other places here. One thing is we know that the slaves were always sold in the busiest place of the city so that the largest possible market could, could be reached. 
And so these slaves would be brought to the busiest place. The other thing we know is that the slaves were always sold having been completely stripped naked. And so those that would be put up for sale would be completely stripped down and put in the busiest place of the city, no doubt on some sort of a platform, for everyone to look at, to consider, and to make a determination if they were going to bid for that particular person. And this is how Hosea would have come upon his wife in the open square. Completely born naked, bared there naked, in front of everyone of the city to see. I imagine Hosea was a broken and devastated man. Would you agree? And I imagine when he begins to compete with the other men who were joking and laughing at this naked woman standing there, and some of them probably mocking Hosea himself. Isn't that your wife? Up there, she's good looking, isn't she? Imagine the pain and the hurt that he had to go through. But he went through it to faithfully love his wife and to win her back. And he wins the bidding process. Bidding process. You see, 15 shekels and a homer and a lethic of barley. I don't know what a lethic is, um, but it's a system of measurement. And somebody tells me, this scholars tell us, that that homer and a lethic of barley was equivalent to about 15 shekels. And so he put out 15 shekels. He put out what was equivalent to 15 shekels. And so for the cost of 30 shekels, Hosea buys his wife's freedom from her debt so that he might take her home again as his own. And as I was studying this passage this week, I I was thinking, why didn't he just put up 30 shekels? Why, you know, sell a homer and a lethic of barley there? And I I don't know this for certain, but I couldn't help but wonder, maybe he didn't have any more money. And so he begins, I'm buying this wife, this woman. And he begins selling off stuff that he does have so that he can get enough money so that he can win this thing here. And if that is true, it shows us here that Hosea was willing to redeem his wife by any means possible. Whatever it took, I'll sell what I need to sell, but I'm not leaving here without her. And I hope you're seeing some of the parallels here this morning. 30 shekels, we know Christ, 30 pieces of silver. Gomer, completely exposed and laid bare. Hosea, willing to do whatever it takes to redeem her. The idea of delivering from debt, delivering a person from a debt they incurred, incurred, that's the idea of what's called redemption. It's the picture of redemption. It is what it is. And Hosea redeems his wife by paying the debt that she had incurred as a result of her sin. My friends, you and I, we are Gomer in this story. We are the ones that have incurred a debt so large that we became powerless to repay that debt. But there was a Hosea. Don't forget the word Hosea, the name, it means salvation. It's the same name that is pronounced slightly differently, Joshua. Joshua means salvation. Joshua, in sort of a Greek understanding, is Jesus. It's the same name. Jesus means salvation. Hosea means salvation. There was a Hosea who came and paid the debt of Gomer. And in the same way, you and I, there's a Jesus who has come and paid. There was one who paid the price of his own life even going so far as to declare, Father, if there is no other way, then let, this, then let your will be done. 
And like Hosea, I need more than 15 shekels. Well, I'll sell my barley. I'll sell my lethic and my homer of barley so that I, there's no other way to do so than that's what I will do. Whatever it needs to repay or to uh, purchase this, redeem this person. Jesus said he would do this. Matthew chapter 20, he said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, redemption, same word, for many. And our Lord entered into the marketplace of sin at the cost of his own life and at the cost of his own life. He purchased us for himself. I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know where you're at with the Lord necessarily. I know many of us. But I do want to be sure that I extend this morning the message of hope. That forgiveness of sin is possible for each one of us. Even as forgiveness of sin is needed for each one of us. And so whether you're in this room or you're out there watching it on TV or you're working in the nursery or something, or maybe there's probably going to be some people that hear this message years to come as it's on a CD or something like that. No matter where you are hearing this message, please know this truth. You can be washed of your past and present sins because Jesus Christ is willing to forgive you and he's willing to cleanse you and to clothe you of your nakedness. He's paid the price so that it would be done. And our job, our responsibility, each one of us in this room, our responsibility is to receive his work of redemption, to allow him to set us free from the penalty that our debt, our sin had incurred. When Hosea bought his wife, no doubt, he took some clothes that he had with them and he laid them over her like a big robe of some sorts and he began to walk with her back to their place of residence. And that's what the Lord desires to do. He desires to clothe our nakedness, our need, with his righteousness so that we might walk with him. And if you don't know that reality, you have never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to receive the Lord to enjoy the blessing of his work. And I want to encourage you, ask someone that brought you here. We'll have the leaders, the elders and others will be up here after. We'll talk with you. We'll help you get started in your walk with the Lord. But we want to pray for you. For the rest of us here, I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian a long time. Perhaps you've been struggling with an area of sin and you've been struggling with a sense of condemnation. I can't believe I got involved in this thing. And you're beating yourself up over that sin. He already took the beating for you. And I just want to encourage you, come on forward afterwards. We'll pray with you and we'll allow the love of Christ just to wash over you, cleanse you from your unrighteousness so that you can walk in the freedom that he desires for you to have. Amen, friends? We'll stop there today. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture. And Lord, that you loved us, as as it says there, you loved us even to the very end. You couldn't love us in a greater way, but you gave us your dear son that our sins could be dealt with and forgiven. Lord, every one of us in this room, we know we're sinners, that our sin separates us from you. And yet in your grace and your kindness, you've made a way. We don't deserve it, but Lord, we receive it. And I pray, as Scott prayed earlier, Lord, for anyone here that may be having trouble receiving your mercy and grace, Lord, would you open up their heart even this moment? Bless this congregation of of people. Send us forth from here with the joy of the Lord, our salvation, and use us in the lives of other people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. 
Thanks again for listening to the Sermon Podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.